Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the second edition of Minding Our Business. And, and thank you, by the way, to the thousands of Dr. D, literally thousands, right? Absolutely. Uh, thousands. Multiple thousands. Of individuals who tuned in to the very first episode. You never know. You never know. That is Dr. Wendy Dees, UM professor of all things sports, business, marketing. I'm Jason Jackson. Uh, I, I'm just merely a carnival barker in, in a new tent, pumping a new tent, letting you know what's in the tent, uh, taking the tent down and letting you know where the tent will be erected the very next time. This is <laughs> Minding Our Business, hashtag mob. And in, in our second episode, it's, it's really simple. We, we have the start of Major League Baseball season. NHL and NBA are in full effect. And as we go to print, and I guess in podcast business, that's simply recording. Uh, the Super Bowl, 53rd edition, has just occurred. Uh, first of all, Wendy, your overall feeling uh, about the Super Bowl itself before we get into the high five today? I think it was a surprise in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think anyone was expecting the defensive juggernaut that we got and I'm not sure everyone really loved that but <laughs> um, at least it kept it interesting uh, down to the last quarter um, so I think that part of it was uh, might be a little bit disappointing for advertisers at least because at least the feel that I was getting during the game and even after the game was that people were a little bit bored I even saw that that headline the super bored um, because obviously casual fans are looking more for offense and turnovers and highlight reel type of plays, and they didn't get that. So we can talk about that when, when we get into ads and different things, but from an advertiser's perspective, um, it wasn't exactly what, what they were looking for. Um, but we can chat about all that. Yeah, I mean, if you were a defensive coordinator or, or if you coach high school, college, or maybe even pro, football on the defensive side of the ball, you're probably elated. I mean, that was a great game for you. Uh, most of us don't have those occupations. Oh, that, so was, that was a D.C.'s dream, that game. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. It was, it was really tough uh, if you had anything to do with the Rams offense. If you're a Rams fan, you were extremely proud of your defense, that you, that you didn't allow Tom Brady to do what he can do sometimes, which is just get on one of those three to five touchdown game rolls. But uh, – I'm with you. I'm interested as we move into um, our very first topic, how some of this lack of fervor impacts these folks that pay millions upon millions of dollars to advertise during uh, North America's greatest sports spectacle. So uh, let's high five. By the way, this is a tough high five for us because you're in paradise and I'm in Portland. So yeah, we're not going to have those real live high fives today, so we might have <laughs> a sound effect here and there. I mean, we are literally directly across the country from each other right now. There we go. So, yeah, I made it happen. 
right there. there. I met you in the middle. <laughs> Without a doubt. All right, first topic. Super Bowl commercials. I don't know why I love this so much, Doc. I guess I'm like any other uh, red-blooded American who loves to be entertained uh, when they're supposed to not be entertained but informed about products. Uh, it's the only television show that keeps me around during the commercials, and I'm finding lulls in the game to go to the bathroom because I don't want to miss anything. Are you that hyper uh, about Super Bowl commercials or not? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm paid to be a marketing dork, so this is really kind of like uh, Christmas Day for marketers, you know, watching Super Bowl ads. And the only thing is, uh, first I'll say that it's kind of interesting now that all of the commercials are released ahead of time, and everyone has different theories on whether that's beneficial or not, but now almost all the commercials, if not all the commercials, are released ahead of time. So from my perspective, um, I'm not a fan of that. Um, I think a lot of people who see the commercials before the game then don't mind if they miss those you know, commercials, and I think if those commercials are re released pregame and they have some type of teaser or the rest of the commercial is going to be played during the game, I think that's a great idea. Um, but just to show the whole commercial and show your hand before you play it, um, I don't know that that's the best approach, but a lot of people had already seen uh, those commercials. And uh, again, this year, the commercials were over $5 million or right around the $5 million mark for the 32nd spot. So that's a lot of cash to drop on a commercial and then have no suspense when they actually come on in game. I'm glad you gave me the number so that I had a good feeling for what we're talking about. And the majority of the commercials, if I'm not mistaken, are 30 seconds, right? There are a few that are 60 and and some lost their mind and went a little bit longer. Yeah, but, you had, uh, had Anheuser-Busch dropping like $35 million on several minutes of ad space, but obviously they bought many minutes, and it ended up probably being less than $5 million for them. But the average spot was about the same as last year, $5 mil, mil for 30 seconds. And T-Mobile seemed to uh, empty the coffers as well. They dropped a bunch of commercials that were kind of, you know, funny. Quippy seemed a little shorter, um, but I felt like there were at least a half dozen of those, no? Yeah, they, they did go hard or go home this year, too. So, um, you know, they had the whole kind of meme uh, strategy there. And some people loved it. Some people, you know, thought they kind of went the easy route. And But at the end of the day, what matters with the Super Bowl, the strategy, is people remembering who the companies were. It doesn't even matter if you remember the exact commercial. I don't think it even matters if you love it or hate it. Everything with the ads is about remembering the brands. And I find it really interesting because one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the websites I always go to the day after, I can't remember if it was on ad week or ad age, but uh, they always do summaries of uh, not only the commercials, but surveys on uh, the fans and what they thought. And it's like 75% or close to 75% of Super Bowl, uh, people watching the Super Bowl view the commercials as entertainment. And very few see them as um, something that is going to convince them to buy anything, change their attitudes, um, you know, consider a product. Mm -hmm. um, most people see the commercials now as entertainment. And if that's the case, 
then really all you're looking for there is exposure and for someone to recall your brand. So here's the dilemma, right? As I open up USA Today money section, as I do every day, because come on, what do we do around here? We mind our business, right? So with that being said, uh, their headline story was about the rating of the 58 spots that ran during the Super Bowl. And USA Today's money section has their own ad meter panel, which consists of U.S. citizens 18 years of age or older who registered themselves to vote and be a part of this on the adveter.usatoday.com website. Thanks to the social folks at USA Today Money for giving us the insight. They rate uh, the commercials 1 through 10, 10 being the best. And I first want to give you the bottom five. Okay. And, I, and there's, a, there's a running theme with these five. You ready? So coming in last at 58th. Uh, hashtag eat like Andy from Burger King. Then, yeah, the 57th was the Wix.com commercial with uh, Carly Close. And uh, then the TurboTax Freaky commercial with RoboChild. That was 56. Yeah, that um, gave nightmares. Yeah, the, the Journey, which they tried to make into an action film for Turkish Airlines, that was 55th. That has to sting for them. Um, because they tried to make that out to be a feature film. And then the Deep Clean Level, uh, Persil, I believe is the name of the, of the company. Uh, so those were the bottom five. And all of them, I think, tried to swing for the fences in kind of an artsy-fartsy way and, and got caught a little bit. Um, here, here's the top five. I'll go five to one because there's a point I want to make about number one. Um, at number five, the coach who wouldn't be here. That was the Verizon commercial in connection with the NFL uh, Chargers head coach Anthony Lynn was in a terrible accident uh, a few year, many years ago, but uh, uh, not only was he speaking to first responders, the responders to his accident were there, and it was a surprise to him. So that one was a little bit of a tear. Yeah, Verizon went totally feel good this year. Yeah, no, that was strong. Uh, the Hyundai commercial, the elevator, uh, was number four. Microsoft's We All Win, number three. Uh, Amazon Alexa's Not Everything Makes the Cut. Pretty funny. Uh, really? That was number two. But here's the interesting thing. The number one rated commercial among USA Today's ad meter panel was the 100-year game, and the client on that one is the National Football League. <laughs> so their own spot for their biggest game ends up being the number one spot in the mix, and rightfully so. It was awesomely done. Actor-director Peter Berg directed this one. He also did the Verizon spot, by the way. Um, with uh, with uh, Coach Lynn, he uh, so he had a nice little one-two punch. But here's the thing that blows my mind about this one is how late they brought this thing together. When you listen to this, the, the, the idea was born in November. It was approved in December. The NFL didn't start calling the stars in the spot until the week before Christmas. Production started less than a month ago. And the ad was filmed over three days, most of it in L.A. They had to go out to New England for um, Tom Brady and Gronk, plus Baker Mayfield sitting there, you know, to catch the rings. That was a great little part for the Browns fans. Uh, they had to go to New Orleans to get Breeze, and they got a bunch of guys at the Pro Bowl, like Mahomes. Uh, but my goodness, man, they, they – like, like, wait till the 11th hour for the great idea, by the way. Sounds like me preparing to teach, you know, one of my evening classes. Some of the best ones are what you come up with at the last minute. And just to add to that, not a single player was paid to star in that amazing commercial. 
Um, and I don't think the NFL uh, pays for that ad spot. So there's the NFL just, you know, they just print money. They just know how to do things. They, you know, get all of these different things for free and uh, come into the city and get lots of um, lots of space in the city for free to put on the Super Bowl. And then they just, all they do is win, right? They win with the commercial. They win with, you know, the Super Bowl. And um, everybody loved it. I mean, they just, everyone thought the commercial was amazing and all the different, you know, players that were in it. And it was an awesome way for them to kick off this, you know, 100th year anniversary that they're coming up on. The NFL can be tone deaf about a, a lot of important social things. Uh, but in celebrating itself for its 100th year, this was a home run. I mean, absolute pressure. You found yourself being drawn to social then, right, to go look at it again to see how many players you missed the first or second or third time because it's moving so fast. And I thought uh, I think it was James, uh, Jim Brown that probably had the best line in the whole thing, right? It was great. Boy, is this a great party. <laughs> think about how – lucky for the NFL that on a year where the commercials really tanked, they were shining. If they had that commercial on another year where there were tons of great commercials, but it was head and shoulders above all the others. And in a year where, you know, there just, there really wasn't much competition. I mean, you go through those top five commercials and what, two out of the five are kind of, you know, feel good and you know, very emotional messaging. So they were really only competing with one or two really funny, uh, memorable types of commercials, and theirs was by far the best. I don't think it was even a question. Uh, 7.69 uh, to 7.34 uh, between one and two, and, and, and those separations of, of, a tenth, of tenths of points are a big deal in this particular rating by uh, USA Today's Money ad panel uh before we move on real quick it's nobody's fault right but but if you're if you're someone who bought an ad are, are you pissed that that this freebie from the NFL ended up uh, of signing everything or is it just the way it goes yeah i think you're a little disappointed simply because um you know the game was such a dud and we know from the research especially in the if you're a second half advertiser and the game is not really exciting, you lose a lot of people. And everyone was just pissed at the first half and kind of, you know, how slow and, and awful it was and not exciting. And it was a big punt fest. And Well, the whole game was a punt fest. But um, so if you're an advertiser, particularly in the second half, you really want a good first half. You want something really exciting. You want a halftime show that's amazing so that people are pumped and ready for the second half. And I think the second half advertisers probably didn't have as good of a year this year. And then if you look at the Super Bowl ratings, they were down again for the fourth year in a row. Um, and they were one of the, it was one of the lowest ratings in the last 10 years. So now I have to preface this with, if you're not familiar, NFL games and Super Bowls are the highest rated programs in the country, um, hands down. Yeah, by far. Yeah, the NFL always has, what, 60 or 70 of the top 100 shows every year. And the ratings blow all the other uh, professional sports away. But if you are paying $5 million for 30 seconds for the primo 
ad space in the Super Bowl, you still want it to be a great Super Bowl with great ratings, and it was a 10-year low this year. Enough with the commercials, but not enough with the Super Bowl. Next up, a great column in the Atlanta Constitution Journal. Post the question presented by former Miami Heat beat writer Michael Cunningham. Is the Super Bowl really worth it for the town? Now, this is like in your wheelhouse, Wendy. This is next-level impact on how a city really reaps the benefit of what the Super Bowl brings to town, which is really impactful, hundreds of millions of dollars. But what Michael Cunningham's noting for Atlanta is the cost that they had to spend to prepare for the Super Bowl against that number, which a lot of people debate if it's a real number anyway. Yeah, I think what is most interesting to me about this AJC article is we're on deck, right, in Miami. I mean, we are now, whatever, 363 days away from uh, (laughs) Super Bowl, LIV, or LIV. Everybody else calls it LIV. We call it LIV because we're in Miami. Um, But this is, this is coming our way. This is coming to town, and, you know, we're on the clock now. So I was really interested to see kind of what the, the city of Atlanta spent to get the Super Bowl there. And um, so basically Atlanta rebuilt or built a brand-new uh, facility, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, to get the Super Bowl, which is not unusual because Miami completely has redone Hard Rock Stadium to attract the Super Bowl as well. But kind of the numbers of what's going on in Atlanta are just mind-boggling. So just within the past 22 months uh, alone, Atlanta has uh, put forth $2.4 billion worth of new and renovated stadiums for three of its professional teams, and the vast majority of that went into the Mercedes-Benz Stadium specifically to attract, um, you know, the Super Bowl. Um, Obviously, it's home of the Falcons and um, Atlanta United FC, and they won a championship, and that's great. But really, the city was trying to bring the Super Bowl to town, which they did. Um, But they spent $700 million on the stadium. Um, Estimates right now are they spent around $30 million on the Super Bowl itself, But in terms of the return on that, the economic impact studies, I kind of initially are putting a number of $200 million on how much they might get back out of this Super Bowl event that just left town. And when you start doing the math on that and taking, you know, $730 million and you're getting $200 million back from the Super Bowl, you start to realize why people are writing these articles about whether or not, you know, trying to bring in a Super Bowl with a new venue is really worth it. And I think the, the greatest quote out of that whole piece, Jax, is um, Michael Cunningham said that, you know, the NFL and the Super Bowl creates this situation where you socialize costs and you privatize profits. And that is, mm. that's a really powerful statement when you think about that, what that means, that, you know, it's not just the NFL, any mega event, you could say FIFA, you could say the Olympics, we're not, we're not out to get the NFL. But these mega events reach out to cities and have the cities raise money from all of their taxpayers and from their visitors, because a lot of this is, is um, raised off of tourist taxes. 
But yet when you look at how the profits are made and who they go to, the NFL pockets a lot of that money. They get all of the ticket revenue. And like I said before, they have a whole laundry list of um, expense items that they tell the city that they're not going to pay for, that they want to get for free, whether that's hotel rooms or uh, use of facilities, um, um, you know, things that are tax-free that they're not going to pay, you know, taxes on. And so at the end of the day, you really wonder, did the citizens pay for all of this? But then most of the money goes back in the pocket of the owner of the football franchise in the building and the NFL commissioner and other NFL owners because it gets distributed across the, the ownership. There is this thing called Legacy 53, and that's basically the, the number changes with whatever Super Bowl it is. And, and on that list, there's $2 million for the JFK Park on Atlanta's west side. Uh, the NFL Foundation, uh, Mr. Blank, who owns the Atlanta Falcons, his foundation, uh, that there's some money from a preseason game, all going into refurbishment there. Uh, one program um, connected Super Bowl vendors with more than 200 business owners uh, businesses owned by minorities, women, veterans, LB, LGBT, and uh, promise resources for the future. Another program provides school breakfast grants for Atlanta. So there, let, let's note that there are things that are at least a footprint that's left by having the Super Bowl in Atlanta this year. But the sheer math of this it, it, that, that Mr. Cunningham presents, I think, is what's staggering, is that you have $700 million that the taxpayers paid the Falcons to have that new beautiful stadium. There's about another $28 million uh, that's raised on the back of the citizens of Atlanta for Super Bowl committee activity. So we're talking about $728 million and, and the high end economic impact of the Super Bowl in Atlanta this year is 200 million. So we're talking about a half billion plus. That's just net nothing, right? That's not, felt in any way other than for benefits for folks that already have a great deal of money. Yeah, and I think there's two other things to note here as well. Um, there are tourist taxes, because Atlanta's a tourist city, so there are other tourist taxes um, that are being levied to maintain and operate the building over time. So this is not just $700 million that the city raises to get to that $1.3 billion mark to get the, the shiny new toy. But even once the building is constructed, it's an enormous amount of cost to maintain a facility like that. I mean, this is considered one of the most high-tech, if not the um, uh, most first-rate high-tech uh, venues in the world. And so um, a tourist tax is then implemented to have consistent funds coming in to cover the cost of operating, maintaining the building over time. And you always have to look at economic impact numbers, that $200 million. And all economists will tell you that those economic impact numbers are, uh, they're not exactly accurate, you know, and they're normally on the higher side versus the lower side. Um, they normally take into account um, more forms of, of impact that may or may not be actually happening. So, in terms of economic impact, you have direct and indirect and induced. And, um, I, you know, I won't talk about all of those, but it's 
very difficult, if not impossible, to really measure indirect and induced. But even the direct numbers, the, the new. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Money coming into the area from the visitors, that's even um, questionable because you have things like the substitution effect where people say, okay, Atlanta's a tourist city. If the Super Bowl wasn't, you know, there that week, all those hotel rooms and entertainment, you know, complexes, they would still be filled with other people. In fact, sometimes folks can't get into town on that weekend for some other event and events have to be rescheduled on other weekends because Super Bowl is going to be in town. And if the Super Bowl wasn't there, those events would, would be in town and maybe they wouldn't have as big of an effect, but you know, if hotels are still going to be at 75, 80 or so percent capacity, even when the Super Bowl is not there, then the Super Bowl is not really bringing in all of that money. It's a substitution effect. It's just, you know, bringing in money that would have been money from somewhere else. And so those economic impact numbers can be inflated. So when you just start to think about all of these different things, how much money the city of Atlanta put forth for this, and then start looking at where the profits are going, which a lot of it is going to uh, the NFL, and to um, the Falcons because it's their home, then there's reason for citizens in, in these communities to wonder if $700 million might have been better spent elsewhere. Yes, like my pocket. I would take it right now and figure out how to get a boat. Ah, that would be the first thing I did. Oh, stop it. Now that I would get one down to my ankle for that. You would one. use it for your charity. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> oh, listen, you're too good. All these other, all these other areas. There's lots of things that cities need. Amen. Absolutely. Uh, Miami, get ready. It's all yours. Uh, but if you love mine and our business, we move forward to the National Basketball Association. So mid-January, uh, the NBA played its 91st game in Europe. How about that? Wow. I mean, that's just that, that's that's something else. And it was a great game, by the way. Uh, it ended up being a nail biter down to the end. So all the folks in London um, saw the Knicks and the Wizards. Maybe not, <laughs> maybe not the marquee teams as it pertains to success, uh, but definitely some East Coast teams that Londoners know at least the names of the cities. They know exactly what they're dealing with, and they got a one-on-one, one-hundred final as the Wizards took care of the Knicks at uh, O2 Arena. But outside of the game, there's just so much conversation about what's next. Uh, I, I think the, the European game is a lock, right? That's not going anywhere. Nope. Uh, it's, it's a positive. I know there's conversations about, you know, moving it to Paris. And 
there was a time where there was a game in Paris and a game in London, but that was the preseason. So you could get two things going. Uh, the Mexico City game shows that, you know, it's just difficult because of the schedule to do more than one game uh, during the regular season. But Commissioner Silver went down a massive checklist of international discussion uh, that really now you have to entertain. And the first one that caught my eye was changing the dynamic of the NBA season coming down the road with an international tournament or two. And, and basically it's having a conversation with the Players Association over time just saying, is there a fresh way to look at the season? Could you create more space in the season so that you could bring more teams over to Europe, different places around the world, even Latin America? Um, I think he has an affinity, a personal affinity for how soccer operates, Wendy, in, in that you have your regular seasons, you get your champions from all of these leagues and maybe it's divisions in our case, uh, and then you play more tournaments. Champions League, Premier League, what have you, um, mirroring those types of things. Um, it's, it was such an interesting thing that caught my eye uh, and is a you know collective bargaining negotiation away from me, anything real. But uh, the following is more global. The ease at which we move around the world uh, is at its best, despite some of the things we probably experience in, in airports. So it's not one of those things that, that is too far-fetched. Yeah, well, it's it's fascinating because, you know, the NBA is smart about this. They know that, you know, the more they expose the product in these different countries, and then it's going to lead to developing, you know, more talent. And it's interesting because this international game being in London, um, it's kind of funny because really basketball is much bigger in other European countries. I mean, London's not really the basketball hub of Europe you know it's much more popular in in France and Spain and Italy and Greece and um, all these other countries um, but they've got a great venue in London they've started to develop uh, an NBA fan base in London in fact um, when the commissioner was talking about moving to Paris, that the fans in London were were starting to get upset about that. So <laughs> he's got himself in this position where, yeah. you know, now the folks in London are like, hey, if you want to do two games over, London and Paris is fine, but not just Paris, right? So, you know, the NBA's got a foothold in London, but the commissioner knows that if you're playing tournaments around Europe or, you know, in any country – um, then what you do is you start seeing that talent flourish from that country, um, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years later. And then it's just this virtuous cycle where as soon as you get a star from another country, like, you know, Giannis on a Tocampo, you've got him and the whole country of Greece now is, is locked into to those games. And the NBA has, you know, fans coming out to, to those games you know, in the States, you know, supporting him. And it's so refreshing to see that. And so, you know, the commissioner is thinking that if we carve out time to do like a little worldwide tour, then this is just going to pay dividends for us 15 years down the road when some kid becomes the next NBA star. The NBA is already doing this. Mm -hmm. um, but the more countries you go to, the better that model is going to work. 
And, and the commissioner has the hardest sell job, and it's not going to be to the players. It's going to be to the owners because you're going to have to cut the season down probably somewhere between 50 and 60 games to make this other stuff happen. And, and I remember after the – no, listen, he's going to have to figure out how to get the money rolling in. But if you're having these international tournaments, come on now. Wendy, the money's rolling. Okay, it's coming in. You just got to figure out if it's, if it's as lucrative as the home games that these owners are going to have to give up. I'll tell you this, though. After the lockout in, in 11-12 uh, uh, that, that led to the beginning of the season right on Christmas Day, of my now 22 seasons that I've covered in the NBA, that was by far the most enjoyable. Really? It just felt right. 60 to 66 games. Uh, it was intense once or twice because we had three games in a row. But if you know that that's coming and you're not forced by a work stoppage, you probably have a better way to plan that out. Um, there was something about the pace, the tempo, the meaning of the games. Uh, you never went through – like right now I'm in the rigors of an NBA season. Right, that's 42 to 62 uh, on the 82-game schedule as I look at it. And there's some games that just wear you out. If it wears me out as a broadcaster, imagine players. Now, coaches are crazy people, and they want, you know, excellence and perfection for every single game. But when you're thinking about players and you're thinking about optimum play and the amount of attention in this space that you're asking of the modern sports fan, less is more. Well, and I remember that lockout season, and as a fan, you also felt that, right? Because you had a restricted supply that year, yeah. and the demand was through the roof, and the excitement whenever you know the games came back on, and um, there was it was much more intense throughout that shortened season. And so, I think the fans go through that as well. I mean, you don't have to, you know, ask baseball or basketball fans what a long you know, season is like, there's those ebbs and flows and the shorter the season is, you know, if we're talking about just the shorter the season physically in the United States, um, they may see a, a pent up demand. So uh, those are all things that, you know, the commissioner and the whole, you know, uh, league office is considering behind the scenes with this. Dr. Dees, we've reached that magical portion of the show where we're two thirds of the way through the high five. We maintain our in-season excellence by turning our attention to the National Hockey League. Now, when you, brought, when you brought – yeah, hockey love is, is not always easy. Uh, please for me. I'm busy during their season. And, and so, you know, there's, there's very few sports uh, that have the side-by-side -side dynamic, like the NBA and the NHL. Um, but uh, I did appreciate a story you sent me about the National Hockey League developing an app allowing in-game stats and analytics on the bench. Now, the issue of the major technology push in sports uh, has a lot to do with data and, and what you're going to do with it. Um, having information at your fingertips beyond standard box score information. Uh, for some time, both the NBA and the NHL went the way of uh, the NBA, I mean the NFL, I should say, and baseball's been doing it forever, uh, of having video available at your fingertips right there, uh, close to the field of play. Uh, and I guess this for the NHL, the idea of having the most finite, minutiae-based information possible uh, right there on the bench in play uh, is an interesting dance they're going to have to 
workaround from a competition standpoint, uh, but also takes them to another level. Absolutely, and they're the first. They're the first league now um, that's going to go beyond just the video on the bench and allow the coaches to use um, 30 different statistics. So they're going to have over 30 on-ice statistics and information that can be customizable and adjusted um, for the coaches based on, you know, what they're trying to do in game. And uh, what's also really fascinating about this is, you know, the NHL has the RFID chips in the, uh, in the hockey pucks. And they have the chips inside uh, the player pad, shoulder pads, mm-hmm. um, and they can collect data at a speed of, you know, 180 points per second. So they're getting all of this in-game data. Um, like you said, this, this isn't even close to box scores. I mean, this is some really fascinating stuff, and, you know, this can help with uh, – player training. This can help with um, minimizing or maximizing playing time and can help with injuries. Um, What I love most about this is this isn't just an issue for the coaches and the players. This is also an issue for the fans. Now, the, the article states that the coaches were the ones requesting to use more data in the game. So this was not a situation where the coaches and players were resisting this. They're asking for more data and saying this will make the game better. This will make the, the players and the strategy better. And it'll make the experience for the fans better. And this is where I think it's so fascinating because as a fan, you've got to be saying, okay, well, the more information the coaches and the players have, there are going to be different adjustments. Um, you know, the game should be higher quality, maybe less player injuries and, you know, better performance throughout the season. So we've gone from, you know, the very first layer of using data, which is just for um, initially it was just to use after the game to evaluate team performance and then create practice and uh, training strategies. But now we can see, real-time changes during the game based on what's going on with the players straight out of their, you know, pads in the puck. And this, this all started immediately after um, the all-star break this year. So this is, um, this is just starting right now, second half of the hockey season. I realize we don't have this information in front of us, but with, with Apple and SAP, their involvement, is this lucrative for them or is this just more branding for them? Do you think? Um, I, that's a great question. The, the short answer is I don't know their level of involvement. Um, I know they, they did collaborate with SAP on the data collection piece. Um, they actually extended their relationship uh, with Apple. Um, I believe initially they were only allowed to have, you know, three iPads. Now they're allowing four. So this is getting, you know, more uh, product in the hands of, of the coaches to use. Um, uh, so it, it seems right now that it's, it's more of a partnership in terms of, you know, sharing the product and, and using the service of SAP to supply this, uh, but it looks like there's definitely going to be an extension of both of those relationships and maybe an expansion of that here very soon, especially if this second half, you know, reveals some really positive changes within the NHL based on this added data usage. 
Dr. D's, let's round third and head for home with the game of my youth, Major League Baseball, getting some serious money. Nike will be the next jersey supplier for Major League Baseball, a licensing deal originally awarded to Under Armour in 2016. So under this 10-year deal, which starts in 2020, Nike is going to design the apparel that players wear on the field. We're talking jerseys, uh, base layers and warm-ups. Um, now, Fanatics, uh, a, a sports merchandise supplier, will manufacture and distribute uh, all of Nike's MLB products uh, to, you know, the schmucks like me that are out there trying to, you know, still buy stuff. But uh, this is interesting. You have to first take me to how in the world Under Armour got undercut on this situation, and, and then why is this important for Nike? Well, if you weren't following along on this um, several years ago, three years plus now, um, that was right around the time that Under Armour was making big moves. Their stock was up. Um, they were signing major deals in the college football space. Um, if you know, if you don't follow that, um, Under Armour inked that uh, big supplier deal with UCLA to the tune of $280 million at the college level. So Under Armour was making big moves and investing a lot in these supplier partnerships at that time. Um, then very shortly after that, and some people attribute it to kind of the political missteps uh, that Kevin Plank made um, in his support of, you know, the president and, you know, kind of the conflict with some of his major athlete endorsers like Steph Curry uh, at that time. Um, but shortly after some of those uh, political issues that they had, stock dropped, finances uh, didn't look good at the end of that year, and they immediately had to kind of pull in the purse strings and they had just agreed to terms with Major League Baseball at that time. And then when things, you know, began to go in the toilet, um, they reneged. And they um, said yeah. that they were changing strategy, going in a different direction. Um, but for all intents and purposes, I don't think the money was there for them. Um, so, you know, Nike was just waiting in the wings for this particular league and now they jump right right in there um the the deal was going to start in 2020 no matter what so now it's going to be nike instead of major league baseball fanatics was going to be the the uh, distributor there even if it was under armor so that didn't change it was very easy for nike to slip right in there and then now Nike, who was, you know, quiet there for a little bit of time when Under Armour and Adidas were making some big moves in very dominant Nike fashion. Now they're right back to owning um, the three biggest of the four professional sports leagues. So now they have the NFL, they have the NBA, and now they'll add Major League Baseball to um, their portfolio. And if you don't know anything about Nike's baseball business, um, they currently have a stable of more than 500 professional uh, endorsers with all sorts of all-stars um, like Mike Trout and Giancarlo Stanton and just a whole host of all the big names. So Nike was in baseball, but now they own baseball or they'll, they'll start mm -hmm. to own baseball in 2020. It's pretty astonishing. 
Well, when you think about it, uh, right now I believe it's who is it, Majestic, that uh, uh, makes the jerseys, uh, and they were in this deal for what two hundred twenty-five million. Um, so now it's going to be interesting uh, to see how lucrative this becomes. Uh, not a lot of people. It's funny. I, I wonder what you run across with, with your students at the University of Miami if there's this hardcore Nike versus Adidas thing. I know, you know, from an institutional standpoint, UM is locked in with Adidas. But for the young um, purchaser, the actual clientele, uh, those folks that are out in the street purchasing the gear, are they beholden or moved by uh, the swoosh versus the three stripes versus um, – if it's Under Armour or whomever, based upon their favorite sport or their favorite team, having that logo on their gear. Absolutely, 100%. Nothing moves the needle like an official supplier relationship. And it's funny that you mentioned Miami because I've seen this firsthand over, you know, the last several years. I mean, Miami was historically – you know, a Nike school and nobody ever thought that would change. And everyone here wore the swoosh. And when we signed with Adidas, there was actually like a collective groan in the, you know, UM Miami. <laughs> oh, we're with Adidas. It was, it was almost, people were just astonished like that. They just thought that that could never happen. And there was some resistance at first, but you know, once, once all the coaches and the players and the front office personnel and, you know, in this case, you know, the league is wearing a certain brand, then everybody who's, you know, a serious fan or even casual fans, you know, if you want to wear, um, you know, the official merchandise and, and you want to wear what um, the players are wearing and the teams are wearing, then everybody converts. And I even said this to my class, um, the other night, um, you know, I look across the room and I see everybody, you know, living the three stripe life. And I'm like, how many of you would be wearing those three stripes today? You know, if you had that choice of, you know, the brand that you wanted to buy yourself. And a lot of them say that they would, you know, still purchase a different brand if it was their choice personally. But if you're, working for or supporting an athletic department or a league, um, that's what you buy. And then also if you're a fan and you're just yeah, you purchasing. want the same stuff. Official, you want you want the real deal. And so it absolutely takes an entire fan base of a sport and it just converts everybody over naturally. Maybe not immediately. It it probably took like a year or maybe into the second year here for everyone to really get on board. Um but it shifts an entire market of folks from one brand to the competitor with just signing on the dotted line. It's very powerful. Uh, before we run uh, the deal that Under Armour had was uh, a half billion dollars. Do we assume Nike got the same deal? I haven't seen any actual hard numbers on this 10 year deal. I know it's 50 million a year when Under Armour signed. Yeah, I haven't seen the number on that, and I don't know that it has been released because, um, you know, Forbes was reporting on this, like, you know, late, very late January. Um, so a lot of times whenever these deals come out, the 
length of time is reported and you know kind of the terms of the deal and we don't really find out the number later so this is hot off the presses so we'll we'll probably find out the number um, coming soon well, when we get together in march we'll probably have that to dive into a little bit more the men and women's ncaa tournaments will be in full effect and i'm sure the nhl and the nba will provide us with fodder we need to dive into for Dr. Wendy Deeds, I'm Jason Jackson. Always be minding your business. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.